Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie Bishop. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Um, so I'd like to begin with the question we ask everyone, which is what are you reading at the moment? What am I reading? I'm having a really, really exciting reading year. Um, the last year or so I was finishing a book, so I, I kind of didn't read anything unless it was absolutely essential to the thing I was working on. So now I have this, I have a series of insane reading piles that are kind of scattered throughout the house, depending on what I'm working on. So I have, you know, things that I'm reading for work or for teaching, things that I'm reading for a book, things that I'm reading that would put me to sleep, things that I'm reading that will wake me up. I must have about five different reading piles and I kind of graze my way through them. So the one next to me at the moment has, I'll have to, I'll hold it up for you and then we can just see the titles and there's almost too many. So what have I got? The Mirror, the Mirror and the Palette, Jennifer Higgy um, on Women's Self-Portraits. I've got, there's so many amazing books that have come out this year. Gwendolyn Riley, My Phantoms. I love her work. I've got Jenny Erpenbeck, Not a Novel, and Boya, The Undying, Annie No, The Years, and Catherine Angel, Tomorrow's Sex Will Be Good Again. So Fantastic. really, really, they're really exciting. Um, so this is my reading year. And that's just one pile. That's one pile, yeah. They're almost a weightlifting exercise. It, it is kind of. I figured to get through my piles by the end of the year, I'll have to probably read at least three books a week, which is quite a fun prospect, really. Yes, that is, well, a PhD-like <laughs> level of reading. <laughs> well, if I'm not writing a book, you know, it's kind of all preparatory. Yes, of course. May I ask what your... You have a new book coming out this year, I believe. Is that right? I do. Oh, so no, not this year. My wishful thinking. I finished it this year. It's not actually coming out till 2023, which seems a, a small lifetime away um, and is a little surreal because it's all kind of all the production lines of things are underway. Um, but no, it's not coming out till 2023. It's um, partly it's because it's an international publication. There is, um, you know, simultaneous publications planned. Um, so it's partly for that reason. And I think there's the hope that by then I'll, we'll be able to travel, all that stuff. But um, I don't really know what to say about the book yet because I haven't had to say anything much. Um, so this is the first time I've said kind of anything about it, I suppose, really. And I don't know how to talk about it yet without completely plot spoiling it. And I suppose if I were to try and give a brief summary without giving anything away, um, it's narrated by, and this may be giving something away, it's narrated by a woman writer whose name is Lucy, Lucy Blackwood. And she is married to a much older man who is a filmmaker and professor. He was once her teacher. She, Lucy, has won a very prestigious literary prize, which is not named, and has to travel to New York to receive the prize. She tries to link this trip into a kind of anniversary cruise with her husband, um, and he dies en route. So the novel is narrated by Lucy, and after his death, um, things kind of open up and we, we understand what may or may not, well, we do ultimately understand what has happened. Um, I suppose it's a book that is about, the only way I can describe it at, at this point is that it's a book about the power of art and the art of power and the way in which we are all unreliable narrators of our own lives. Yes. yes. 
what a beautiful sentiment. Um, the character Lucy Blackwood, is this the same Lucy Blackwood from your um, second yep. novel, The Other Side of the World? She was the child in that novel and she is the narrator of this one. So it is a standalone book and this has been kind of interesting. I don't quite know how this will play out in terms of how um, it is pitched or marketed depending on the audience. I thought of it at first as a sequel. It's not really a sequel, it's something else and I don't know what you call it um, because you can read it as a standalone book and I can't really explain why because that would give the story away. Um, but yes, it is narrated by the child from the other side of the world. And uh, will we see Henry and Charlotte, Lucy's parents again? Yep. That's very exciting for me. I just uh, finished <laughs> rereading The Other Side of the World for the first time since I first read the book. And I, I'd forgotten how just beautiful being inside the characters' heads was as an experience. Thank you. They are both such attentive characters to, to the world around them and give so much um, beauty, I, I think. Yes. Do you have a title for the new book yet? Yeah. At the moment, it's called Outro, like as in the opposite of an intro. I don't know if that will stay the title. There's some discussion around possible alternatives. We don't have any alternatives at the moment, so if we can't find any, it may stay as Outro, um, which is a title I was talking to my UK publisher last night. It's a title that makes sense by the end of the book, but you don't necessarily know at the beginning why it's called that. Um, so we'll see what happens. It's a catchy title. It's a strong placeholder. <laughs> Just launching into uh, some questions from Unsweetened's bias point of view, we are very interested in looking at how literature influences identity for individuals and communities and nations. And those are themes that I think are fairly, fairly central to at least two of your books. Are there any works that have been particularly influential for you as a writer or as a reader or as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, there've been so many, it's now hard to keep track of them. And I suppose, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting question because it, it, thinking about it, it makes me realize that I don't really any longer anyway, um, distinguish between those different things that I do, writing or reading or teaching. There, There is a kind of just the segue between them all, one activity informs the other. I couldn't teach if I wasn't writing, I couldn't write if I wasn't reading, it's reading that makes me want to write and so on and so forth. Um, but if I go back to the kind of beginning of things in terms of the books that really started started me, uh, well, well inspired me and made me want to kind of do those things and, and write books and, and teach and, and talk about all that stuff, um, it would have to be going all the way back to high school um, and reading Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot. And that felt, Woolf in particular, just felt like a, it was an extraordinary discovery. You know that feeling you have when you're, you're younger, feeling as though no one else has ever read this book before, that this book was just meant for you. Um, they wrote it with, with your entire being in mind. And that was the feeling that I had when I first read Woolf. It was just a complete revelation. So I went from kind of Wolf, you know, kind of as a 15 year old through to, and, and Elliot at the same time, um, but Wolf in particular. I went from that through to, to kind of Jeanette Winterson and then Marguerite Duras. And that was sort of all in that early pre 20s kind of period of thinking, what am I going to do with my life? And those loves have really stayed with me. I've never 
it's never diminished my passion for those books. I suppose then other things started to feed into the mix um, once I was studying and, and trying to write myself. Um, and in particular, the things that really changed my, my take on the world and, and made me, I suppose, think about my own place in the world was reading philosophy. And I came to that through literature. I had some extraordinary teachers who asked us essentially to read poetry and to read fiction through the lens of philosophical thinking. And that was, again, just, just a kind of revelation for me. It showed me a different way of seeing. It showed me a different way of experiencing the world. Um, and it was the, the kind of fiction and the poetry in combination with the philosophy that really, um, I suppose, set a fire for me. Yeah. So that was kind of Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty, um, Simone de Beauvoir. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. That kind of phenomenological thing. Yes. yes. One of the um, uh, common definitions of literary criticism is the philosophy of literature. And mm -hmm. while I know that's very contested, particularly by um, more traditional philosophers, I do think it's a good way of looking at, at literary studies because it it is about enriching literature and creative writing with, yes, nonfiction and with abstraction. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, all art... I think all the art that really moves you, moves you because it is embodying a different way of seeing the world and embodying a different way of being in the world, which is inherently philosophical. If you can find a way to kind of think about what that experience is. And sometimes you need the language of philosophy to help you access that experience. Sometimes the way you think about that experience, you know, you, you can have your own language for it, but art changes the way you inhabit the world, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But. <laughs> and it leads very neatly into my next question, thinking of place. You had a transnational education in literary studies because you began at UTS, is that right? Yep. Yes. And then you went on to do your PhD at Cambridge. In your experience, is there a difference in how each country approaches creative writing and all literary studies? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the way our, the Australian model of teaching creative writing is very similar to the UK model and in many ways has kind of absorbed or um, adopted the UK model. Um, the only difference being that we don't tend to offer an MFA. Um, so, but the way in which creative writing and um, the way in which we think about the, the teaching of creative writing happens here, I think is very proximate to how it happens in the UK. Having said that, I didn't do creative writing. I mean, I, I, I did creative writing as part of my BA and then I didn't do it afterwards at all. I didn't do it for honours. I didn't do it for my PhD. And it's not taught, certainly wasn't when I was there. It's not taught as part of the curriculum in any way at Cambridge. Um, certainly very much alive in extracurricular kind of life and collegial discussion and so on, but it's not actually something that is part of your BA. So in that sense, it's dissimilar to how it happens here. Um, I mean, my, my sense of how it informed my education in terms of moving between those different spaces, um, I'd kind of given up. When I went to Cambridge, I'd given up on doing creative writing at, at any kind of upper level for a whole lot of very complicated reasons. Um, I was trying to write a novel and, and just couldn't. Things had happened in my life that were very disruptive and, and I felt very stuck. And so I decided I would become an academic. 
only to find that when I was doing my PhD, I felt like something in me was just no longer alive if I wasn't writing. And I started to treat the PhD really as a kind of apprenticeship in style and an apprenticeship in a way of thinking about literature that meant something to me in a creative capacity. Um, and very deliberately, you know, with the help of my supervisors, tried to think about how do you read literature in a way that is creatively generative? What does it mean for how you would experience literature to then be able to, you know, I don't know, transpose that, think about that, interrogate that in terms of in terms of creative work. Um, but there is a dialogue between critical thinking and creative practice. And I suppose that was what my PhD, it, so for me anyway, not on the page, but for me, that's what it became, you know, that's what it was about. Yeah. How wonderful. And you graduated with a PhD in poetry and poetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I was looking at American literature. Um, and it's funny, you know, I, I haven't really read poetry seriously since then. And probably for a decade after my PhD, I just couldn't read a poem. Um, and and <laughs> I think it was possibly a case of just complete overkill. Um, and at one point, I was going to change subjects, you know, at that second year heebie-jeebie stage, um, change topics. And my supervisor said, no, really, just don't do it. Um, and I didn't, but I often wondered whether I should have and that I was going to go and work on fiction and not poetry. And I, now I'm really glad that I didn't because I think, imagine if I'd done an overkill job on fiction and I'd never been able to read a novel again. So, so maybe it was for my own good. Um, who knows how these things work out and why they happen as they do. But um, yes, it was in poetry and poetics. You do seem to have, um, well, my experience of, of your prose is that it is a very poetically rich form of writing and particularly with assonance and alliteration and pacing, it's it has always felt like prose poetry almost to me. Thank so you. while I'm sure there's a great deal of poetry that would have been lovely to read in, in the time after your PhD, I think you've you've continued <laughs> you've continued using poetry. Thank you. I mean, I still, you know, those ways of thinking about literature are the same, no matter what genre you're, you're working in, I think, in terms of, you know, trying to understand those poetic principles that are, yeah, but, but there was certainly a kind of overkill factor that happened in that period of time, which I, I don't think is that uncommon. People just don't talk about it very much. Yes, many people, I think it was you who told me this quite a few <laughs> years ago now, you said that there's nothing like a PhD to make you hate a topic you loved. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it doesn't always work that way. I know plenty of people for whom, you know, they've continued to have a very rich relationship with the material that they worked on, you know, in that graduate period. Yeah, and, you know, there are other factors that play into my situation um, at the time, which is that I had a I had a baby at the, well, during my PhD. So there was a very radical disjuncture or, or kind of, you know, a, a very dramatic change in just my way of life and, and how I saw the world in that period. So I don't know whether that complete change in kind of academic direction as such also was kind of part of that, that life change at that time. Um, yeah, who knows? Speaking of children and well-being in the UK, your second book, The Other Side of the World, which came out in 2015, follows a family's migration from England to Australia in the 1960s under the £10 POM program. Um, and there's also a particularly beautiful section of the book set in India. So what, what led you to such a transnational story? Did it come from doing 
a PhD in, in England and beginning in Australia or? Uh, I mean, there were a few things that that made me decide to write that book and to write it in the way that I did. Um, and it did, I mean, yes, being in the UK did trigger it or galvanize the idea, I suppose, um, in that it made me think again about my own family's experience in a way that I, I hadn't when I was in Australia. Um, in that my mother moved, my mother moved to Australia when she was a child, nine years old, from the UK. But her father, my grandfather, uh, was born in India um, pre-partition. Um, and he grew up in India and was all his childhood memories are of India. And he was sent to England just before the war. And he and his two brothers, he didn't see his mother for what, more than 10 years. Um, but he never thought of himself as Indian. Um, he thought of himself as British. Um, and I always found that just extraordinary. To what degree was that part of just the culture in which he grew up and a sense of normalizing that identity that to everyone else looked false? Um, or not to everyone else, but, you know, it, didn't seem authentic in in some contexts. Um, I just he identified as as British despite his early years in India. Yeah, mm. and and obviously didn't look British. He looked Indian, um, and I found this really striking. Um, and it, at the same time, alongside that narrative, so he moved to England. Um, then. Uh, married my grandmother and decided to move the family to Australia, um, much at my grandmother's um, horror and, and a kind of continuing protest till, till, the, till she died. You know, I mean, she never wanted to be here. She never thought of it as home. And I'm not sure that my grandfather ever had a strong and innate sense of where home was for him. It was something he sought out deliberately and tried to create for himself. Um, and I found that in my own transitions of trying to figure out where I felt that I belonged and the place that I would think of as home, I found his own diasporic experience just deeply compelling um, and something I wanted to think about. Um, so it partly was my own sense of moving you know, from one place to another that made me want to investigate that. Um, but it was very much an attempt to, to kind of think through that family history in a fictional way and understand, try and understand um, the complexity of, of his identity. That's fascinating. And if The Other Side of the World has a shared protagonist role, Charlotte and and Henry, who, uh, am I right in thinking they're vaguely mo modelled on your grandparents? Yes. yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Up to a certain point, I mean, as characters, yes and no, their experiences, certainly Henry's experiences, are very closely modelled modelled on my grandfather's and I took oral histories and so on and, and did a lot of research and, and um, you know, travelled to, to the hill stations in India where he had been a child and things like that. So that's all very closely modelled on, on him. The character of Charlotte is again, it draws on my grandmother's experience in terms of what she had told me about her sense of dislocation and homelessness and longing and all of that um, but her experiences are perhaps not so similar to the real experiences of my grandmother's Charlotte's and, and my grandmother's um, in in terms of how they're presented in the novel but um both my grandparents were the real 
people behind those characters, yes. There's uh, not a, a stark difference, but certainly a difference for me reading um, Charlotte and Henry just in terms of how they negotiate the space that they're in. And there is such a sense with Henry that he's observant and he looks for beauty and he looks for nature around him, but he never quite uh, synchronizes that with, with himself. Whereas for Charlotte, it's like she connects so deeply um, to the British landscape. And while, um, you know, she does see some beauty in Australia, it's like it's it's not hers. Yeah. Yeah, their, their whole experiences of, of migration are so distinct. Yes, I think that's a, to, that you're, you're right. It's a really lovely way of putting it. Um, yeah, and I mean, I saw that play out in, in my grandparents' lives. It really interested me. Um, and I started to empathise with that once I started to move between countries. Um, I think in my family, my grandmother's sense of not feeling at home here and not feeling grateful in the way she was expected to feel, you know, that was kind of dismissed. Mm. It wasn't taken seriously. And then when I started to move around, I, I really felt for that sense that, that her longing for her real sense of home was never validated. It was never recognised as being a real feeling. Instead, she was meant to feel that she was fortunate to come here and she didn't want to. And I really felt for her um, as I grew older. Yeah. Mm. Whereas I think for my grandfather, there was, and, and this is, this is to um, read between the lines very much so. But for me, there was a sense that he was always looking for something. He looked closely because he was looking for something. Mm. Um, and I'm always curious as to how those early experiences of landscape that we all have, the places we love as children, shape what we go looking for in the world, the places we want to find when we grow up. And Charlotte has that so cleanly in, in England. She's she's nostalgic for this one set place which she she visualizes and she paints and she remembers the smell. But then then for Henry, it's sort of like his nostalgia is ungrounded. Um, yeah. quite literally. It, yes, yeah, you're quite right. Yeah, it, it it's a kind of um uh, yeah, a, a loose and floating nostalgia for something he can't place. Yeah, and he, he bonds so beautifully with his children. He's he's so tender with the, the two little girls. And um, I, I'm very curious to read your <coughs> book with grown-up Lucy because I've always wondered, like, how do these children feel? Um, uh, what do they consider their homeland to be if they have one? Yes, I can't. I shouldn't answer those questions now, but all will be revealed in good time. <laughs> I have two years of waiting. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, I will. The anticipation will build beautifully, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, something that's so so prominent in the other side of the world is um, uh, descriptions of landscape and and the really visceral sense of being fully sensorily in a place. Mm. How do you go about writing that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't really anticipate that it's not something that I seek out in any conscious way but I think it's probably fair to say when I reflect upon it that for me the starting point of all writing the thing that triggers me to put something down 
is the fact that I have a visceral response to it. Mm. To me, it's kind of an error of thinking to consider writing as something that's cerebral. For me, it's always visceral. Um, it's, it's translating a response that you are having to the world. Whether you're translating that in a fictional framework or not is, is irrelevant. And I suppose, you know, I mean, in terms of me trying to, to understand my own kind of train of thought and, and, and history, that the, the PhD that I worked on was very much about a visceral response to poetry. How does the body experience sound and rhythm? That I'm interested in that in a critical capacity, but, but all writing for me starts with that response to the world. And when the writing is working, for me, it's because it is making manifest that response to the world. Um, so I suppose I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, it's an intuitive process, you, but you know it's working when I read back over a sentence and think, yes, that's the feeling. Mm. It's one of those rare, beautiful moments in literature of being fully transported and uh, the character's visceral experiences that uh, the idea of translation of the visceral to, to the reader is um, quite an extraordinary thing, I, th I feel. Thank um, you. And to me, that seems the pleasure of reading, um, you know, is to feel, to feel that, you know, that, that kind of very intense, a sense of being transported into, into a different set of sensations. Mm. Um, and yeah. that's very, very prevalent in, in Wolf. I, I Absolutely, yeah. She was an absolute master of the body yeah i agree i totally agree yeah um you feel it you know you feel it in a work when there is that sense of, of kind of a real sensory aliveness um and, and which is basically an energy to me i mean something has an energy or it doesn't have an energy and that might be a rhythmical energy or a kind of sensory detail energy or whatever it is but you want to feel it in your body to me as a reader anyway yeah, yeah absolutely you're um so Charlotte, as a protagonist, um, is is a painter, and she, after her two children are born, she has some dissonance with with her process as a painter. And um, in your third book, um, Man Out of Time, which came out in two thousand eighteen, the protagonist, well, protagonist is a loose term. Uh, Stella is is a writer, and you. I'm not you, very inventive, am I? These <laughs> characters always writing. Well. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, very different parts of the art world, but um, mm. yeah, certainly both artist characters. Mm. I, as a writer, always find it difficult not to have artist characters, just because it's, I don't know, I, I suppose a way of engaging with the world that I, ca I can't quite dislocate from, mm. from my writing process. Mm. Maybe that is uninventive of me, but... Um, well, maybe it's just the most interesting thing to think about. Yeah, the relationship between between art and, and yeah. human life is yeah. perpetually enchanting. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I got off track there. But um, <laughs> so Stella, the young author, we follow her from when she's uh, eight or nine, I think, through to adulthood. And she's, I assume, from the perspective of hers that we get, that she's quite a gifted author. But there's this absolutely heartbreaking line that's repeated through the book. Um, said to her by her father, Leon. He says, you know, I am at the core of everything you will ever write because of all the pain I've caused you. And that was just an excruciating line um, for me, like this, this sense of him dislocating her from her writing, taking away the autonomy over her own stories. 
Was that a prevalent idea or line for you in the writing process? Yeah, I mean, it's probably fair to say that the book started with that line and that in the initial working through of the drafting of that book, the question for me was how I could get that line to repeat itself through the narrative as the kind of theme, almost the theme of the book. Um, or the theme of Stella's experience. We never really know if she herself is the one writing that book and trying to kind of reclaim her narrative. Yeah, I mean, the, the, in terms of where that line came from and its significance, it's hard to overstate its significance. And I find it, you know, just extraordinary and quite humbling and, and moving that, that you pick that line out. I don't think anyone else has, but you're completely right. Like if you pull that thread, everything else unravels. And I kind of you know, um, yeah, go to jelly. Um, <laughs> so that line, I get strangely inarticulate when I try and talk about this book. And I was saying to someone the other night that it's funny, you know, when a book first comes out, there is the feeling that, certainly for me, and I, I expect that this is not uncommon, there is the feeling that whatever you say might be used against you. Mm. Um, that whatever you say at the time of a book's release will to some degree determine its reception, which I find quite interesting, but very troubling. So I, I, you know, this was a difficult book to talk about and a difficult book to write because um, so much of it is biographical. Um, my father had bipolar um, and this was in the eighties and nineties when, you know, the understanding of mental illness was, you know, well, bad to say the least. The medication was ineffective. The diagnosis changed based on the medication. Um, to say the situation was dysfunctional would be a wild understatement. Um, so in terms of where the book came from and that line, it was for me very much an attempt to kind of think back through that experience in a fictional capacity and in some ways try and make sense of things that as a child were normalised and yet made no sense. That discoordination of being told something was normal and yet you know it is not and that it's not right and that it doesn't fit and no one helps you make sense of that you know you, you kind of can't process that well I certainly couldn't process that until a very very long time after the events when I kind of lost track of what had happened and what hadn't happened and what I had invented and what someone had told me and what narrative was true and and it was almost as though the passing of time released me from having to um, be beholden to the truth because I didn't know what the truth was anymore. And there were so many differing versions in my family of what had and had not happened in the course of those years of his life. He died when I was 21, so that's quite some time ago now. Um, you know, there, there was no real version. And so I wanted to use that line as a kind of refrain to, to circle around possible versions of things that may or may not have happened and to, to kind of think about them in a fictional way. In terms of what the line actually meant for me and what it means for Stella, I mean, I suppose it was a way of thinking about the manner in which, particularly in the case of kind of mental illness and those kinds of instabilities within family life, the way in which a family member can aggrandize their role in someone else's experience and can impose a narrative on their experience you know, that is that is kind of a real mindfuck. And they might not know it because they're not stable. Um, and the child can't know that that's not the case because they're a child. 
And the only way I could unpack that line for Stella was to trace it through her history as she became older and could see that line from a different perspective, from a perspective of history and age, um, and try and kind of interrogate and transform that line into something that she didn't have to live underneath of or beneath. I don't know if that's grammatically correct in any way, but that she could sort of, I really don't like the, the kind of common notion that one has to own one's story. That's not quite what Stella was trying to do in the book um, or what I was trying to do by writing it. Um, but there is a sense in which she has to track that line through her own history in order to understand its complexity. Mm. There's such a malleability to a, a child's psyche. I, I can't remember who said it, but some author at some point said the greatest responsibility of a parent is telling a child the first chapters of their life story. And I'm sure many a debate could, could go into how a parent can do that. It's <laughs> pretty amazing when you think of it like that. Um, yeah, and the level of narrative cohesion that is required to do that in a sound way. I mean, I think that in itself, even in a, even in a stable family, is probably, probably quite rare. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, and for Stella, who does have so many different inputs into her life and uh, Leon is so important to her and despite all of the ambiguity, loves him deeply. That idea of, you know, that her stories belong to him in, mm. in some way, it felt like him stunting her ability mm. to move on in creating her own story. I'm not sure if I've expressed no, that. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And that's certainly how Stella experiences that in the book completely. And it's funny, you know, I mean, I think it's really difficult, and I say this as a parent, you know, to get to that point where you have to recognise that your child will have a different version of their lives, a different narrative sense of their lives than the one you have of their lives, and to let that be, um, and to not try and impose your version of their life on them, and to let them have their, their story in the way, and to interpret their story in the way they want to. You know, that's actually... That's a really curious and sometimes challenging thing as a parent. So, and I think also as a parent, you say things that, that you don't think will have the weight that they end up having for the child. Mm. Um, Leon says this to Stella at some point in a kind of throwaway sense. And Stella takes it on board almost as the motto of her life. Leon may not have meant her to do that. Yeah, of course. I can't imagine any circumstance where, you know, perhaps apart from giving religious doctrine, where a, where a parent would actually be saying something like that yeah. and expect it to shape the child's life. No, absolutely. Um, it's, it's just day to day. But for a child in those early years, it's mm -hmm. everything is formative. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. unexpected things are formative. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a parent can miss those things, you know. You can you cannot see the the mountain that the child has created out of something you've said. Yeah. Not yeah. To, that's not to dismiss Leon's wrongs in any way, but to try and contextualize that line in, in terms of how, how Stella treats it and thinks about it as she gets older. Of course. It you know, Leon is a very problematic character and <laughs> I I at multiple points went, oh dear, what's going on? <laughs> I, want, I want to stop this situation happening for Stella, but it's um he was such a an extraordinary character to be in the head of. And um in 
I think the second half of the book, you you shift perspective. Most of the book is in third person, but um, very abruptly, it it just transitions into second person in Leon's psyche, and it was so um, surreal as as a reader. This this sense of just shifting into the second person, you are experiencing this, and while you know everything had been very visceral, very acute, it it felt so different to be told mm. you. Um, was that a really a active decision for you? Or? Yeah, that, that was. I mean, I knew that I'd been experimenting with different ways of trying to convey his level of dissociation at mm. key points of, of um, his breakdowns. You know, at one point the book was entirely Leon and that didn't work. Um, and at another point, it was entirely stellar, and that didn't work either. Um, so it was a very slow process of trying to figure out how to kind of maximise that experience of breakdown without it taking up a huge amount of space in the novel. And second person became, for me, the way of trying to do that. So that was quite a deliberate choice, but it happened quite, my understanding of that happened quite slowly. Yeah. Second person is such a, a rare experience, I, I think, in um, most day-to-day -day reading. I think the most second person I've been exposed to has been in narratology classes and looking specifically for pieces that break convention. Mm. And this was just integrated so so smoothly. It was um, quite an experience. <laughs> Sorry, that's a very vague comment. But No, 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 thank you, thank you. But yes, I mean, I think you have to use second person for a reason. And I suppose that's, you don't see it, if, you, if it's overused, it, it loses its power, it loses its effect. It's probably, a, you know, a good reason that we don't see it too often. Um, yeah, there has to be a justification for it, I think. I'm sure in terms of um, philosophy of literature, second person has a great body of philosophical thought, thought to it. It's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's um, again, drawing um, some links, we've got the beautiful painter of Charlotte and the beautiful author of Stella and both of them have experiences of their art becoming dislocated from 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 their life first Charlotte motherhood and, and marriage really impinge just on the time she has to paint let alone all of the the energy that mm -hmm. that's needed mm -hmm. and Stella of course her cycle um her stories cycle around Leon and th there's a line where she She's reflecting on every story you write will be about me. And she's just sort of indignant, I, I think. Was that a theme that you were sort of conscious of with the other side of the world that was then so central to Man Out of Time? Or It's a really good question. I certainly didn't make the connection between the two books that that question or experience of dislocation was common. But once you put that to me as a question, it, I suppose it makes me realise the degree to which when I'm writing the thing that I'm most interested in doing is exploring things that seem uncomfortable or that seem not to fit, that seem to be dislocated or out of place or I can't find them. Yeah, there's. I think it's fair to say that that question of dislocation is probably always um, at the core of anything that I, I write. If I understood how everything fitted together and consciousness was seamless and everybody knew their place in the world, there'd be no reason to write anything for me. Mm. Um, yeah. 
there are so many maxims about how uh, narratives need need conflict or, or need some form of drama. And while there is substantial conflict in, in both books, that sense of dislocation is a, um, it's far more subtle than there's lots of screaming and the uh, death and, and whatever counts as drama, but, but that underlying sense of dislocation is what drives the way that the characters interact with each other, I think. I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. I think you're absolutely right, that I suppose investigating that experience of dislocation does absolutely kind of draw attention to psychic life and to character life and to internal experience. And any conflict that then arises comes about as a result of that internal discomfort, um, that sense of internal dislocation. Um, as much as anything, I think, that the external manifestation of conflict, you know, that's a kind of a, a result or a side effect or symptom of something else going on internally in regards to that, exactly that feeling of being dislocated, uncomfortable, in a state of disease. Yeah. And it feels a very natural way when, when conflict comes about, have, having already experienced a character's dislocation, it, it doesn't lessen the extremity of extreme situations, but it's it's a more cohesive way of seeing how how tragedy and how huge life events do just slot in yeah to to the psyche yeah yeah i mean it seems important to me that there's always that that kind of relationship between that that internal life and whatever happens um in in the external space of character action yeah mm. I guess that's the question we're always kind of asking ourselves too, is, well, what, why did they do it? I, I'm much more interested in why someone did something than what happened. Or if something happened, I don't want to know what happened next. I want to know what, why they did the first thing, you know. Um, so it's, um, they're connected. A character's psyche will always be a web. A single event can unfold an entire life story sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, we are very nearly out of time and our theme at Unsweetened this year is mythos and uh, we are hoping it will be interpreted in a great many ways, not all of them literal, but on the literal definition of mythos. Are there any myths or folk stories that have been really influential in your life? There's been a lot um, at different stages. I would probably, if I had to choose two, I would have to say Ariadne's Thread and Orpheus and Eurydice. I'm not familiar with Ariadne's thread. This is um, the labyrinth. Um, Ariadne, uh, there is the minotaur in the labyrinth. Mm. And Theseus goes into the labyrinth to kill the minotaur. Ariadne gives him a ball of red thread and a sword so that he can kill the minotaur and find his way out. He can use the thread to trace his way through the labyrinth. Um, there are different versions of the story in terms of what happens to her next, um, whether she suicides um, or not and, and so on. But the thing that I always found really beautiful I, was perhaps just the image of the labyrinth and the idea of the minotaur at the heart of it and then this red thread that that could be followed out. Um, and I suppose my, my interest in Orpheus and Eurydice was similar, was that idea of the underground and whether one would or would not ever be free from that and if one chose to stay in the underground why was that? Stephanie Bishop thank you so much for speaking with me today it's been an absolute pleasure to hear from you and learn from you. 
it was lovely to talk with you, Axel. Thank you so much.